From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. On Monday of last week, Andy Miller shared with us breaking news from Georgia Health News and WebMD. Their investigation revealed that two facilities, one in Smyrna and one in Covington, have for decades been releasing high levels of ethylene oxide, a gas that causes cancer. Governor Brian Kemp's administration is now investigating the matter, and the head of one of the emitting companies, area officials, and residents are responding too. GPB's Ross Terrell is covering the ongoing story. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Well, just, well, not bad here, but (laughs) if you were in Covington or Smyrna, you may have a different idea. You attended a community meeting there, in fact, in Cobb County that happened this week. The president of Sterogenics, one of the companies admitting the gas, was there, along with local officials and residents. How many people were there? It was a packed house. It was uh, held in um, Campbell Middle School uh, in Cobb County. Uh, And it got to the point where officials actually had to stop people from coming in and tell them to watch the line. They put stairs uh, or chairs on the stage. Uh, So it was people were upset that it wasn't standing room only, but there really wasn't any place to stand. So I counted more than 200 people. Pretty packed house. Oh, yeah. Many of the questions for Sterogenics President Phil McNabb there. What were residents asking? Yeah, you heard chance of shut it down simply and flat out close the plant. If you know you're emitting this gas, this chemical that causes cancer, why not shut it down? Um, they even asked him, would you live near this facility? Do you live in Georgia? Um, and, and how would you react if you did live near it? And, and his response was, we can't shut it down. He says they do about a, they sterilize about a million products a day in this plant at Smyrna. And if they were to shut it down, it just wouldn't be good for the medical field as a whole. But uh, he was very reluctant to that idea. Yeah, well, so that, we know community groups here are working with others in Willowbrook, Illinois. That was one of the census tracts identified as in danger mm-hmm. of, of high levels of this gas. They managed to shut the plant down there. How did McNabb respond to calls to shut it down? He just said, we're not going to do it. Right. And and so actually in Willowbrook, they had another meeting last night uh, as they try to reopen that plant, as they put them under stricter uh, emission controls. But um, the residents there are pretty upset. And actually a lady from Willowbrook uh, flew down to Smyrna and, and spoke at the meeting. She was very passionate, imploring the crowd, you have to fight this at every turn. We've seen what it can do. It's on you to make sure that this plant has to shut down. Yeah, sounds like it was pretty tense. You did speak to people who live near the facilities. Here's Ben Johnson, Smyrna resident since the 1970s. I have concerns about having breathed the air in 2002 through 2016 when they were emitting 3,000 pounds of the stuff. Now they're saying they're emitting 200 pounds. I should have less concern, but I can't go back and unbreathe the air that I breathed then. Mm. Well, this all stems from an EPA list, again, of Mm -hmm. tracks with potentially dangerously high exposure. A state EPD report said in Smyrna that 27 to 61 times higher the level of accepted area concentration is in the air. So where did this 200 pounds per year figure come from? See, the problem with that, that's self-reported. That was uh, Phil McNabb saying, excuse me, that we reduced our emissions to 200 uh, pounds of ethylene oxide. But... Everybody there was like, well, we want third-party testing. Why should we trust you? You know, how do you say you just went from 3,000 down to 200? And I thought it was really interesting what uh, McNabb tried to do was say, well, ethylene oxide, you breathe this in every day. It's in the bananas rotting on your counter. It's in the diesel trucks that drive by. But people are saying it's not at these quantities. And Ben Johnson went on to say, you know, if this gas is really coming from bananas and diesel trucks are really a bigger concern than okay. But until we have that third party testing, how do we know for sure that what 
uh, stereogenics is emitting is equivalent to a fruit on my counter. And they have done third-party testing in some places in Illinois, in yes. Colorado, in other places, yes. and found that the estimated cancer risk turned out to be much higher than those predicted by the EPA monitoring. Correct. So there's another company, BD Bard in Covington. Is there any gathering there? Any any similar stirrings going yeah, on? So the community, they're, they're happening in smaller uh, parts. There's a neighborhood called Settle Grove, uh, which is very close to the facility. They had a meeting with the law group. Uh, Governor Kemp is going to actually start holding monthly meetings to figure out what's going on um, with these plants. And those meetings will, will pick up this month. But you also have residents there who are just as concerned, who are asking for this plant to be shut down and who are nervous about the air they're breathing. And the levels there I'm looking at even higher um, in 2007, mm-hmm. 6,000 pounds. Now, this is way down from 76,000 pounds when it was first starting to be reported. Right. All right. You also spoke with elected officials. Here's Smyrna City Council member Tim Gold. People are worried, rightfully so. Um, they live close to it. Their health can be impacted. Uh, their home values can be impacted or our whole community can be impacted. So, yeah, they need answers. They deserve answers. Uh, any other officials chime in? Oh, there were a number of officials, uh, Cobb County Commissioner Bob Ott, who will actually be holding town halls later this month uh, with the EPA and the EPD. Uh, you had Senator Jen Jordan. Uh, you had Georgia congressmen uh, weighing in. And the really the debate is there's no question that they want third-party testing. It's just where does this funding come from? Mm-hmm. Um, and Tim Gold said, you know, we'll find it in the budget to make this happen uh, because it's on us. We have money for these emergency things, whereas um, other representatives are saying our tax dollars shouldn't go to make making sure this company is following the laws and making sure that we're, we're healthy. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Who puts in the money? Is it the county? Is it the city? Is it the state, federal partners? Um, but people can't agree that third-party testing needs to happen. You said there's another meeting coming. When is that? That'll be August 19th. So uh, there was originally a town hall scheduled for August 6th, but in order to get EPA and EPD officials there, uh, they backed it up. Which, Bob, the the county commissioner says they actually did meet with. Those officials just weren't able to make it out that night. Okay. Well, we will have coverage with Ricky Bevington on All Things Considered the day after that meeting on August 19th. Ross Terrell, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Ross has been reporting on the responses to an investigative report showing what appear to be toxins in the air in Cobb County. We interviewed the person who broke that story, Andy Miller, on the show uh, Monday, a week ago. You can find that segment at gpb.org. Southeast Georgia, just above the Florida border, there's a vast and famous swamp, the Okefenokee. More than 400,000 acres of black water, pine and cypress trees, endangered woodpeckers, wilderness. You know, one of the things that is so wonderful about this place is the calm, the peace, the quiet, the solitude that people feel. And of course, it's famous for alligators, like the one that just sloshed into the water. About 15,000 live here, so many it's hard not to see one. There's one reason the Okefenokee gets 600,000 annual visits from people all over the world. Susie Heisey is the Supervisory Refuge Ranger at Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge. It just seems as if this place, people gravitate to this place. People want to see it. People want to learn about it. And people want to protect it. So a proposal to mine for heavy minerals near the Okefenokee raises alarm for many. They don't want anything to harm this wilderness. 
The main concern for many is the hydrology, what's going to happen to the water underground. Chip Campbell runs boat tours and rentals at the Wildlife Refuge and sits on the board of St. Mary's Riverkeeper. It's literally one of those subjects that's out of sight, but you know that groundwater is really and a really important part of the overall hydrological regime of a landscape. And we all have to have water. Every plant, animal, human, you know, every industry, you know, I mean, water is absolutely the staple of life. If you disturb the ground to dig up minerals, you could also disrupt what the water does underground and how much of it there is for the swamp and the rivers and other parts of the ecosystem to use. There is already heavy mineral mining in the area, about 11 miles from the swamp's northeastern edge. Mining for minerals in sand is different from mining for coal. The mine digs up a relatively small area at a time and separates out the heavy minerals like titanium and zirconium. It's a bit like panning for gold on an industrial scale. And all it really is is a series of pumps and pipes and spirals. So the heavy minerals are separated from the lighter quartz minerals by the different specific gravity of the minerals. The lighter sandy soil goes back into the ground where it came from. Then they replace the topsoil and replant the trees. Jim Renner is the manager of environmental stewardship for Southern Ionics, the company behind this mine. I have got seven years of hydrologic monitoring data that shows exactly that the temporary dewatering effect of our mine on adjacent areas is indistinguishable from the natural variations of the water table going up and down to do, just due to natural wet and dry cycles. Twin Pines Minerals says the same is true of the mine they're proposing southeast of the refuge. Stephen Ingle is the company's president. With all the studies that we've done, with, with, with all of our experts have taken a look at it, they've modeled it very in, in very much so detail, uh, and there's assurances that it will have minimal, if any, effect at all. You know, you remember the old trust but verify? That's Chip Campbell again. He wants to see Twin Pines' science before making up his mind. This is one of those cases where we got to have the verify. We have to have the verification. If I thought that this was, in fact, an existential threat to either Okefenokee Swamp or St. Mary's River. We would be having a very different conversation, and I would be killing them, you know, with the science. Stephen Engel of Twin Pines says they'll provide their hydrologic reports if regulators ask. The Army Corps of Engineers wants the reports. Twin Pines says they'll be available no sooner than September. The public comment period for the project ends September 12th. Even if the hydrology bears out, Charles McMillan of the Georgia Conservancy is still skeptical. It's hard to envision something this close of this magnitude next to the swamp that would not have a significant impact. McMillan has concerns beyond the hydrology, like the gopher tortoise. They're an important and rare species, not listed as endangered in Georgia, but considered a candidate for listing. Twin Pines plans to work around the gopher tortoise burrows or relocate them, which Southern Ionics does too at their active mine. But McMillan says the gopher tortoises could still end up cut off from each other.
if mining proceeds through there and everybody relocates their gopher tortoises, then pretty soon, uh, the genetically, those communities are going to be isolated. And then there's the question of what happens after the mine is gone. For some, the Twin Pines proposal for what's called reclaiming the mined land is encouraging. They plan to plant native longleaf pine, the trees that originally grew in this whole area and provide habitat for the endangered red-cockaded woodpecker. That's instead of the current slash pine and loblolly pine used for timber. It's appealing to Chip Campbell. Usually it's working timberland and they put it back into working timberland. And the, it's, it's a juicy carrot to be sure, to even have the prospect that they, you know, might be part of the longleaf initiative, you know, the restoration of the longleaf pine fire forest. Charles McMillan of the Georgia Conservancy calls the longleaf pine a step in the right direction, but only a localized improvement. So you look at, you look at a project like this, site-specific improvements, and then landscape impacts, and, and then also maybe even regional. When you have something as big as a 400,000-plus acre swamp, if you're looking at impacting the hydrology of that, that's a regional impact. An impact that for McMillan would outweigh a few thousand acres of longleaf pine. He and other advocates are calling for a more thorough environmental review called an environmental impact statement before this project's permit goes forward. Twin Pines Minerals is hosting two public meetings on their proposal this month. For GPB News, I'm Emily Jones in Folkston. Emily Jones there reporting on the ongoing mining or proposed mining in the Okefenokee Swamp. Coming up, step inside Atlanta's abandoned buildings with a photographer who captures them. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Jeff Hagerman is into ruins. The Atlanta-based photographer is an urban explorer who squeezes through cracked windows or unhinged doors to access what remains after natural disasters, economic shifts, and the churn of urban development. Photos on his Sloppy Stick Instagram page and Abandoned Atlanta book series show moldering factories and malls and once-proud buildings now crumbling and overrun with weeds. These ghostly spaces are all part of a continuing story. They're canvases for graffiti artists, shelters for homeless people, and sets and backgrounds for post-apocalyptic productions like The Hunger Games and The Walking Dead. Well, Jeff is here to talk about the stories and places he shot for his second volume of Abandoned Atlanta, Echoes of a Storied Past. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you photographed abandoned places in Atlanta throughout the country, really, since 2012. What is the draw for you? Just the history is probably the most fascinating thing to me. Just wondering what went on there. And then, of course, I'm, I think it makes for good photographs also. And that's what really got me started into it. And then as I started to discover some of the history about the places that I've explored, then it really kind of fascinated me into... I mean, I became a maniac, basically, just trying to find everything I could. Well, you are a bit of a maniac <laughs> from reading this book. The way that you get into buildings and 
stumble around in ruins. I mean, in really dangerous places. And, you know, there's vermin, there's battery acid, there's old industrial remnants. I, I don't know. Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I've never really felt super in danger. I mean, there have been a couple of times, not, not in Atlanta, but uh, I don't know. Uh, most of the people that I run into are pretty friendly. And luckily, I've never come across, uh, you know, too much as far as any kind of animals or or anything like Any that. Any other critters. But there is a story of you trying to get into, I think it's the David Howard High School in <laughs> Yes. Can you tell us what happened? Um, or you must be re- uh, referencing in the, the window. window. <laughs> um, yes, it was a very heavy glass window, unfortunately. And I was trying to hold it up as I was going into the window at the same time. And I just kind of flopped in and the window shut on my leg. And Luckily, I had a friend there that was able to open the window and kind of let me fall <laughs> into the building. But down to, well, upside down. But, you know, I was limping around all day, and I knew my leg was sore. And when I left, I looked at my leg, and I was like purple, literally mm. from the thigh to the calf. I don't know what it did to my leg, but it it, it hurt. Were the photographs worth it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah the photographs <laughs> are kind of astounding and stunning. I mean, Thank there you. are... In, in that place, particularly, there's, you know, a long yellow hallway with blistering paint and these red doors that are still propped all open. Right. There is this, I don't know, so what happens to your mind when you see these places that were once bustling, occupied places? Again, I just wonder, you know, what went on there before. Um, that's an interesting school because it was also like an ROTC school, I believe, um, aside from being uh, Martin Luther King school as well. Right. Um, Vernon Jordan, Maynard Jackson, I think mm-hmm. you found one there too. But uh, it had an armory downstairs, which is, you know, odd. So this is the second uh, volume in Abandoned Atlanta, that series that you're doing. Pratt Pullman Yard is in their Exide Battery, this massive high school. Mm-hmm. Huge industrial buildings in plain view, really, but people don't go in them. How do you find them? Good question. Whenever I first started, I just kind of stumbled upon a school. Um, I was really into photographing colorful graffiti, and I really loved trains. And I just kind of naturally found myself finding an abandoned building. So um, one day I was going down Huff Road and saw an abandoned school there. It was really unique looking because all the uh, classrooms were like octagonal shaped and it was covered in graffiti on the outside. So, you know, I kind of stopped and looked at it for a second and decided I was going to go eat lunch and then stop by on my way back. So I did stop by and I was peeking in the window and saw like a sleeping bag there and you know, being by myself, I didn't want to run into anybody. So I left, came back maybe the next weekend with a friend and then just hopped in the window and and started looking around. But it's actually a lot of research Mm -hmm. now. Um, Sometimes I wander upon them like the YMCA. That's something that I had no idea it was there. We were actually around the corner looking at another building and we just happened to be walking by and it looked like the door was a little bit cracked. And there was a plaque on the outside saying that was a really, you know, historical building or whatnot. So we just started kind of peeking around inside. This is the YMCA on Butler Street in Atlanta. You didn't even know it was a YMCA. So what do you learn from reading the remains of an abandoned building? Uh, well, that place, I mean, you know, I found out, again, Martin Luther King was a member there when he was young, Vernon Jordan as well. Uh, Walt Clyde Frazier, who was a professional basketball player, played basketball in that gym. And 
I don't know. It's just uh, su super interesting, just all the history that you uncover. Well, to me, that was especially fascinating because there are some rooms that are just trashed. You know, there's only a little puddle left in the pool. But others were remarkably intact. Isn't well, that the one with like a meeting room that looks like people just well, stepped out what, to get coffee? That was actually two different visits. Oh, okay. Um, the yeah, first... so tell me more about that because these things deteriorate as time goes they on, They change as time goes on, absolutely. Um, that place in particular, the first time we went, it still had electricity and running water, which is obviously odd for an abandoned building. And that was one thing that I'm sure was making it uh, perfect for homeless to be staying there. Right. And they were really protective over it, apparently. But yeah, the first time we went, there was the boardroom, had the huge wooden table and chairs and pictures of the board members on the wall. And the next time I went there, it just looked like a bomb went off. It was just concrete walls. And, you know, a homeless person had had a, a mattress sitting in there with some belongings and you know, different things like that. Yeah, and that's another layer of the forgotten places that are, people are living there now. Yes. So what happens when you do encounter people who have really claimed these spaces? You know, there's uh, all kinds of different reactions, honestly. Sometimes yeah. they're super nice. They'll want to show you around. Of course, you know, they'll ask for money. Some people are, uh, you know, really quick to ask us to leave. Most of the time we will. Luckily, nobody's been super aggressive or anything like that. I uh, Really? I thought you had a gun pulled at you once. <laughs> well, that are was you, in Chicago, you... and that was like security, apparently, in air quotes. Um, yes, we were leaving a building in Chicago, and we ran like morons, and I was hiding. Uh, we kind of split up. I was hiding, and uh, one of the so-called security guards came up with a gun and put it in my face. And mm. He didn't speak English. He didn't look like a security guard, and the gun didn't. It looked like it was stolen or something. I would be surprised if it had serial numbers on it. Mm. But uh, yeah, he just like kind of led me, pointing the gun in my back to a little clearing, and luckily somebody that spoke English showed up and kicked me out. Well, you say we, and and that that's something I noticed that we found this, or a friend and I went. Do you ever go to alone? I I have. Um, I obviously prefer to have somebody with me, um, but there have definitely been times when I've gone solo. There was a place in Pennsylvania, a huge psych uh, hospital, and I had never been there before. I made the trip there, and my girlfriend at the time didn't feel like, uh, I guess she was kind of scared to go in because there were some Really? People... An abandoned asylum? <laughs> well, it wasn't really the hospital. It was We had to park in this uh, baseball field, and it was active. There were people all over the place, and she just didn't want to get caught, I guess, walking up to the uh, the hospital. So I went by myself and explored it for probably about three or four hours by myself. Mm. So there is an eeriness to these places, like, you know, the punch clock, the signs for the employees still there and leaves or vines growing around them. Mm -hmm. Are you creating narratives as you're shooting the photographs? I mean, you are really telling a story on some level. I, I do try to. Um, and, I, you know, a lot of people will move things around and try to make the photo photo better but I, I would prefer to just kind of walk into a room as is and then just kind of try to come up with like you said just a like like a narrative or a story to tell with the photograph have any places in particular just you know captured you obsessed you i mean you obviously do research where you can read about the stories right. in this book but any that just take your imagination uh, there are definitely a few unfortunately not in atlanta a lot of the places that are in my books from Atlanta are now uh, destroyed, so they're not even around anymore. But uh, there are some places in New Orleans. There's a hospital called Charity Hospital um, that was abandoned after Katr Katrina. Exactly. Right? It, you know, it was evacuated during Katrina, so they left everything from personal belongings and gifts from people to 
body parts in jars. Mm. I'm speaking with Atlanta photographer Jeff Hagerman. He's author of Abandoned Atlanta Volumes 1 and 2, filled with often haunting, but just really beautiful images of crumbling relics of America's past. He's on Instagram as Sloppy Stick. <laughs> right. Sloppy Stick? <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, I get asked that a lot. Um, <laughs> no. And uh, interestingly, that name actually was made up long before I even got into photography or anything like that. I play pool, so that's actually where it came from. I wish I had a better story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just a, a pool playing nickname. I want to go back to, you were talking about um, people bringing, you know, sometimes being welcoming if you come upon the place where they're living, sometimes not. Um, right. Many of them seem to carry knives, I've noticed from your <laughs> narratives. But do you, do, you, do you you get a sense of how they live? Like there's one guy, I can't remember, was it at the Exide Battery place who told you he was going out back to take a shower? Yes. What, how did he shower? Um, that guy, uh, I actually saw him again maybe a few months ago. And uh, the first time I saw him, I think was probably six years ago. Hmm. The first time we went to the Exide building and he came rolling in with a garbage can and he was super friendly and just told us, hey, you might not want to go out back because uh, I'm going to be naked taking a shower back there because I guess the, the water felt good off of the hot roof or something like that uh -huh. that day. But he was there maybe the first three times I went to that building. He was super nice. The last time I went there, he was very obviously on some sort of drugs and had a knife in his pants. And yeah, he was nice, but Either way, I got out there as quickly as possible. But it makes me think you said six years. I mean, what, I what is it? I'm sure he would be dead. I'm, I'm wondering, like, how does somebody survive? And oddly, he was probably two blocks from Exide when I saw him. A friend of mine and I were just driving in the area. It was actually raining, and I saw a guy on a bike. And from a distance, I just I knew it was the same guy. And I yelled at him, and he came over, and we talked for a minute. And, uh, yeah, he said that he was he's surviving. Wow. So what do you what do you carry with you when you're going into these places? Aside from my camera gear, really just just like a flashlight, yeah. gloves. <laughs> that's about that's about it. <laughs> yeah, there's some pretty nasty stuff in there. Exactly. Well, okay. So but these are also dangerous on other levels. You're in dilapidated buildings that are half crumbling, broken glass as we said, you right. know, rats, fleas. Uh, so places that people want to keep people out of. I mean, it, it is a questionable legality what you're doing. Okay, it's full-on illegal what you're doing. <laughs> so first of all, have you ever been arrested? The short answer is yes. Um, I've never been charged with anything. It's usually once they figure out that we are shooting photos, we're not stealing anything, we're not vandalizing anything, then they tend to be, you know, much more nice to us. Mm -hmm. But uh you know, it's usually when we run. That's why I say it was stupid of us to run when we were in Chicago. It's just like a rule that we tell ourselves, just don't run. Usually if you don't run and just talk to them and say, hey, this is what I'm doing, then they'll just kick you out. Yeah, I see. But a few years ago, wasn't there a skateboarder who got killed at... At Pullman. Pullman. What happened to him? He was, uh, I guess, just walking across the top of it, and there are some skylights, mm -hmm. and I think he was trying to walk across a skylight and just fell right through. Mm. But so this is the realm that you're living with, too, you know, the skateboarders, homeless people and graffiti artists. You've taken photographs of some really, really beautiful work. And these are things that nobody gets to see exactly. except through your photographs. It is very odd. And I have come to know a few of the graffiti writers and just asking them, like, why would you want to put your work somewhere where basically nobody's going to see it? And they don't care. They just want to get their work up. And however it's seen, it's seen. If it's not seen, then it's not seen. That's kind of stunning to me. I mean, yeah. there's there's one place that there's um, a portrait of 
I think it's an Excite battery again, a portrait of Albert Einstein across from Robert Oppenheimer, exactly. you know, looking at each other across the way, but so beautifully worked out. Right. Um, it really is something that people don't see it. But you do research on these places, you know, you found about Dr. King, where he went to high school, the list goes on and on. So what have you in seeing all these abandoned places? And you're looking at them really intimately because you're taking photographs. You're very much engaging with them right. on some level. What do you think about the idea of being left behind? You know, what what is a place? Of course, there are a lot of decisions. You know, there are business decisions. They're meeting in boardrooms. They're like, exactly. we're going to let go of this place. What does it mean to be left behind? I mean, that's one of the things that fascinates me about it. You know, there's no telling what happened to make, you know, the people either abandon the business or their home or, you know, whatever it might be and just leave everything behind. Like the uh, the GM plant in Doraville that was there, when we went in there, there were, you know, still half-filled cans of drinks and cigarette butts and people's families' pictures in their locker still and things like that. It's almost like, you know, they were told that they were, could come back the next day and they just were shut out. Hmm. Yeah. And that has since been torn down, like many of the That's ones gone. that yeah. you've seen. But there are others like Exide Battery along the Beltline, where so many abandoned buildings have been and been transformed, right? And, I'm sure that one will be next. And Howard High was supposed to be reopened in 2020. It's it's getting worked on as it's we It's getting worked on, right? I think mm -hmm. I have seen that one, actually. So what is this tipping point for tearing down or transforming? Yeah, I wonder what that is. I don't know. Mm. I don't know what it is that... Uh, you know, makes I suppose it's cost. Obviously, you pointed out that some of these are like EPA super fund sites. <laughs> exactly. Like uh, Exide, uh, especially, that, that is a super fund site. And uh, I'm sure that's one of the reasons why that has not been developed yeah. yet. I forget what stories we read about that, but there was some super high cost as far as getting that place completely cleaned out the way it's supposed to be and everything else. Lynn has this history of tearing down and redeveloping. This, this actually, it's funny. It's come up a few times in the last couple of weeks. We talked about Summerhill, how many transformations and big developments that have been through. And last week, we talked to organizers hoping to preserve this building at 152 Nassau, where some really important country blues and gospel records were recorded. And actually, we found out that the, the wrecking ball is hitting it, I think, this week. Hmm. So how about you? Do you have a role in this? I mean, are you trying to tell some kind of story or is this an activism? What are you doing here? No, I mean, I wish it could be like an activism kind of thing. But unfortunately, I don't think my photos really, you know, prevent any any anything from moving forward. Um, yeah, no one thinks I want to live there. <laughs> exactly. It's really just a race for me to try to get in and uh, document them before they're gone because of the unfortunate you know, history of Atlanta just kind of tearing everything down and rebuilding instead of uh, saving the buildings. When places are rebuilt, it is kind of sad for me because you can't explore them anymore. But at the same time, you know, we would much rather have them, uh, you know, repurpose a building rather than just, you know, tear it down and rebuild. Yeah. Well, fascinating work that you do. Be careful out there <laughs> in your race against time. Jeff Hagerman, author of Abandoned Atlanta, Volumes 1 and 2. His books tell the stories of abandoned sites in Atlanta. He's also on Instagram at Sloppy Stick. Really worth following. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. All right. And as we're heading in the break, we're going to leave you with a little of Ghost Town by the specials. Because why not? This time.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. By the time he was 11 years old, Eric Weiss was famous for unlocking the door of every store in his town over the course of one night. This mischievous tween later became Harry Houdini, perhaps the best-known magician and escape artist ever. He was also a shameless showman and a bit of a smart aleck. Here is the only known recording of Houdini's voice, introducing a new escape act in 1914. Ladies and gentlemen, I take great pleasure in introducing my latest invention, the water an exhibit at the Bremen Museum tells both the famous and little-known stories from Houdini's life. It closes on Sunday, August 11th. I spoke with magician David London, who curated the show when the exhibit was opening, and I asked him to start with the story of Houdini's father, a man known as the Dueling Rabbi. I think he was fairly successful in Budapest as a rabbi. He became less successful once he arrived in America. In fact, Houdini's father arrived to America one year before the rest of the Weiss family joined him. The Houdini's own story, deemed plausible by experts, is that his father was challenged to a duel in which he accidentally killed the man he was dueling with, who turned out to be a nobleman, and Houdini's father had to flee Budapest, which he seemingly did so with the help of the Rothschild family. But that does not sound entirely plausible. It's entirely plausible. Dueling was a common form of resolving conflict in Budapest at the time. His father was well-connected to the elite in Hungary, so it was possible that he knew the Rothschilds, and he had to get out of there to uh, get out of Dodge. Okay, so I take it back. Sorry, Houdini's legacy. The exhibit at the Bremen brings visitors on that same journey as the family emigrates, eventually landing in Wisconsin. And that's where he first saw a magic show, specifically a trick called the Bloodless Vivisection that seemed reminiscent of sawing a woman in half. So we couldn't resist. Here are Penn and Teller doing just that. Now, after putting Georgie in a cheap plywood box and filling her beautiful legs with splinters, we put a real heavy steel blade in there. And you all said to Georgie, let it show that she really is separated. We'll then put these blades in here. And there you have it, Georgie and Bernasset, a woman sawn into halves right there. That's Georgie right there. Is that pretty much what he saw? Uh, possibly something like that. The vivisection he witnessed was supposedly performed by Dr. Lynn. He actually would have witnessed that performance when the Weiss family moved to Milwaukee. And uh, Dr. Lynn's vivisection was sort of a combination of what we think of today as the sawing in half, but it was also uh, part of the East Indian rope trick, where somebody's would be severed into many different sections, not just in half. And uh, it turns out that even though Houdini believed he had seen the performance of Dr. Lin, the real Dr. Lin was actually performing in Europe at the time. And so Houdini's hero through most of his life was, in fact, an impersonator. So what was it that uh, got his fancy? Do we have any sense of why he was so enlivened by these kind of magic acts? I think that uh, most people who experience magic are drawn to the power that it has, and then a select few of us are fortunate enough to have a calling to actually try to present that in the world. And when you start performing magic, something that the audience never realizes is that you get to experience the magic by watching them. And so it gets a little addicting when you perform magic because suddenly you get to take in the wonder that you're fostering in your audience through them. And so you get to have that wonder sent back to you as well. Well, who wouldn't want to be magic, especially as a kid? You want to do tricks. You want to disappear when you need to. But, of course, these are all, this is all about illusion and misdirection. Is that 
where Houdini excelled where others did not. Sure. Well, I mean, once he got interested in escapes, it wasn't as much about illusion. But I think the main connection between magic and escapes is that Houdini was always interested in new inventions and innovations. And both magic and escapes utilize some really intricate and interesting technology and mechanisms. And I think Houdini was really drawn to that early in life. So a tinkerer and a trickster as exactly, a kid. Exactly, yeah. In fact, one of his, he saw the circus as a kid, and his first for performance was for folks in the neighborhood while growing up. This was called Eric, Prince of Air. Yeah, he was inspired by a acrobat he had seen at a circus in Appleton. And even though he was calling himself Prince of the Air, he wasn't actually flying through the air, although he was performing in impressive uh, feat of flexibility. He would bend over forward, folding himself in half, and pick up a needle from the ground between his teeth. So one of his first tricks was also called the little messenger. Sure. So uh, at the time, uh, Houdini landed back in New York, still Eric Weiss, and he's performing as a telegraph messenger boy. And he creates his very first magic trick. It's a small wooden doll, uh, rather crude looking. And he uh, realizes that it's the messenger's job to travel off far distances. So he works on this illusion where this tiny doll disappears and then reappears at an impossible location, usually in a spectator's pocket. So do we learn any tricks at the Bremen Museum? We do teach you one trick. We teach you a card trick called the two-card shuffle. Uh, it's an amazing trick where two cards change places, sort of reminiscent of the metamorphosis trick that Houdini would become so famous for. I'm not going to tell you how it's done now. You'll have to go to you the Bremen to to the in order to learn that. Yeah. to see it. So this is this precocious kid, right? And when he was 12 years old, I guess he pulled a different kind of escape trick, that one that probably terrified his family. He actually ran away. And there's a letter in the exhibit back to his mom. There is, yeah. I like to call it Houdini's first escape. He's 12 years old, living in Milwaukee, and he leaves him his mom a note that says, I'm going to Galveston, Texas, and I'll be back in about a year. My best regards to all your truant son, Eric. And there he sets off on his own, never makes it to Galveston, but wanders on his own for about a year and then ends up back in New York City and moves in with his father, who's living at a boarding house at the time. So this is in New York City. This is like deep in the vaudeville and stage show era. And he had to kind of scrape it together. He worked at a necktie factory, apparently, calling himself Houdini, Harry Houdini, King of Cards. What did that name come from? So uh, he got the name Houdini because he read an autobiography of one of the most famous French magicians of all time, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. And he was inspired by Houdin's life and story. And so he decided that he wanted to lead a life just like Houdin. So he adds an I to the end of the name Houdin to be like Houdin. And that's where we get the name Houdini. So when did he first appear on stage as Harry Houdini, and what was he doing then? Uh, so early on, he was performing in New York around uh, 1893, both as uh, Eric uh, the Great as well as Harry Houdini, the King of Cards. And he would present a combination of card tricks and other magic effects. Later, he introduces his metamorphosis effect, where he changes place with a uh, colleague locked inside of a trunk. And this was the first time that Houdini would find himself locked in handcuffs on stage. So the escape tricks sort of started at that point. Absolutely. Now, he was discovered, uh, apparently, Martin Beck, is that his name? Yep. Suze, he's a vaudeville theater owner and saw him perform and suggested that he do these escapes. 
imitators popped up around that. How did he keep them from stealing his tricks? Yeah, so Martin Beck required that he stop billing himself as the king of cars and move to the king of handcuffs, but he was always a king, of course. And so in order to stop the impersonators um, who would bill themselves as uh, also the king of handcuffs and every kind of eeny you can imagine, we Dini, T Dini, <laughs> Trentini, uh, Houdini would uh, go to their acts where they, like Houdini did, would accept challenges from the audience for handcuffs to try to get out of. And so Houdini would make handcuffs that were impossible to get out of. He would go to these imitators' acts. He would present them with handcuffs. And when they couldn't get out, which, of course, they couldn't, he would jump up and say, I am Houdini, the only real king of handcuffs. And by 1908, there were so many Houdini impersonators that Houdini took the handcuff escape out of his act. And to prevent anyone else from making money from the act, he published a book revealing all of his methods. I'm speaking with magician David London, who curated the new Houdini exhibition at the Bremen in Atlanta. It's up until August 11th. All right, so he did come up with some one imitation-proof trick, or this was at least the attempt. We heard him introduce this water torture tank. Someone would put his hands and feet into manacles, then he would be lowered headfirst into a water tank with a glass front. The 2006 Christopher Nolan movie The Prestige pays a little bit of an homage to this tank. If you would tie her wrists, bind her feet around the ankle, So the woman in the movie, she didn't make it. But Harry Houdini always got out before the, what, three minutes it would take for a regular human being to drown? Yeah, and actually, sometimes uh, he would never let his audiences witness his escape. He'd always cover the tank with a curtain. And sometimes he would make the audience wait up to six minutes before he appeared from behind the curtain. But I believe that he probably got out in less than a minute and was just hanging out, waiting for the tension to build to its ultimate level before he reappeared. So he didn't necessarily have those drums playing, as we heard in the movie. How did he build the tension? Probably not. I mean, he would challenge the audience to try to hold their breath for as long as he did. And I know six minutes seems like a long time, but the one most difficult escape he ever challenged, he got challenged by the Daily Mayor newspaper to escape from a pair of handcuffs that the best locksmith in London had spent years making. And Houdini did get out of them, but it took him over three hours to do so. Did he ever come close to death in any of his tricks? So the one time that he nearly died, uh, somebody challenged him to escape out of the belly of a sea monster. Most likely this was a whale that washed up on the shore. They dragged the whale to the theater. He was locked in handcuffs and sewn inside the whale. And that was the one time he nearly died died, not because he couldn't escape, but because the toxic fumes from inside the rotting whale nearly suffocated him. I can imagine. <laughs> I well, can't. His straight jacket escape often landed him on the front page. In fact, he sometimes would do it right in front of newspaper offices and pulled off the feet just as movie technology was coming onto the scene. So these movies were initially silent, of course. Phantasma Magic posted this version with a little bit of sound. So, David, what's happening during this trick? Uh, so, probably what's happening is that at this moment, Houdini is getting locked up in the straitjacket, usually done by police officials. He'll soon be hoisted by his ankles into the air, almost always suspended from the local newspaper building. Sometimes crowds of 50,000 people would gather below to watch him escape. And then over the next two minutes, he'll maneuver his body to actually get out of the straitjacket itself. So, he was a master of deception. This is after the First World War. 
millions of people died, and those who promised to contact the dead started popping up all over the place. Mm -hmm. What was his thinking about? Yeah, so this was the second rise of spiritualism in America, the first one being shortly after the Civil War, both times being after major wars where many numbers of Americans had lost their loved ones, and so they were desperately looking for ways to be able to hold on or make contact with those they had lost at war. And even though Houdini had studied deception for his entire life, it was the fact that he was so well-trained in the techniques of deception that allowed him to see through the methods that these fraudulent spirit mediums were using. So he started holding public lectures in every city he would visit. He incorporated the exposure of these mediums into his act because he saw a big difference between using trickery for entertainment and trickery to take advantage of the weak. How about his eventual death? This is something that sounds like an urban legend almost. What happened? It was not, yeah. So a lot of people believe uh, the story of his death that was portrayed in the Tony Curtis Houdini movie in the 1950s, uh, but that actually paints a completely false picture of what happened. Uh, one of the feats of strength Houdini would present throughout his career is he was able to prepare his mind and body to be able to take a punch from even the strongest boxer. And he's performing up in Canada, and a college student from McGill University approaches him and asks if he can take any punch, and he says, yes while he's backstage reading his mail and the student starts punching him over and over and over again. He's in a great deal of pain but doesn't go to the doctor and continues to perform, finishes his run up in Canada, makes it back to America to perform in Detroit and on the very first night of his run in Detroit he collapses on stage and it's discovered that he had been suffering from appendicitis and that punch had actually ruptured his appendix oh. and so he actually starts to suffer from septic poisoning. That is the cause of the extreme pain and that eventually leads to his demise. Houdini what a legacy he left behind. I mean, this show at the Bremen is just one of many. There are books, there are exhibitions, there's so much fascination with Houdini. But now we have these mus magicians and tricksters and escape artists. You know, I remember when I was growing up, Doug Henning making the Statue of Liberty uh -huh. disappear. Yeah. Why is Houdini still the one that people say he's no Houdini or he escapes like Houdini? Yes, I really believe that Houdini was only able to become Houdini at the exact moment that he became Houdini. He it was the perfect confluence of timing, new technologies out in the world. The idea of global celebrity was a new concept. Long distance travel became possible. Long distance communication became possible. New technologies and new media made it possible for somebody to really have their image and their story shared around the world, and he embraced all of those things. What did these kind of shows mean to people at that time? Yeah, so beyond just entertainment, I think that Houdini's real power was that he sort of became this metaphorical creature. Every time that he would uh, encounter a challenge or attempt an escape, he would sort of uh, live out the inherent human drama that we all go through in our lives. We encounter a challenge, we accept the challenge, we assess it, we tackle it head-on, oftentimes or sometimes with great difficulty, and then we overcome. And so each time Houdini was able to escape, he really captured the public's imagination because they were sort of reaffirmed in their own ability to get out of situations which seemed seemingly impossible to get out of. If he can get out of the water torture cell, you can get out uh -huh. of your drudgery? I suppose, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we did mention that he spent years trying to debunk spiritualists and mediums, but he did actually believe one may be able to reach the dead. In fact, he thought he might pull it off himself from the grave. How did he set this up? Well, I mean, who didn't believe that if anyone would be able to escape death, it would be... 
Houdini, of course. So uh, before he died, he set up a secret code with his wife, and uh, she agreed to hold a seance for him on the anniversary of his death each year. She did so for 10 years, was unable to do so. The tradition has continued for 91 years now. And uh, Other people try and contact him? Other people try to contact him. Every year there's an official Houdini seance held on Halloween. The last one was held in Baltimore uh, last year, which I got to attend, as well as the previous one in Cleveland. To this point, 91 years later, though, Houdini has been unable to make contact, but fingers crossed, maybe next year. (laughs) So if you were to get a message or have a conversation with Houdini from beyond, what would you want to know from him? I would like to tell him something, actually. I would love to be able to tell him that he is still famous. Uh, And I would love to be able to get into his mind and figure out really uh, what drove him to create Houdini. And I think this is the important part of the story is that Eric Weiss created this larger-than-life persona that still lingers in the public imagination. And I really just uh, love to understand the inner workings of his mind and try to understand how exactly he made that happen. That's my earlier conversation with David London, curator of Inescapable, the life and legacy of Harry Houdini at Atlanta's Bremen Museum. The show closes on August 11th. You can join the conversation with questions or comments. Call us at 404-500-9457. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at OnSecondThought at gpb.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Allison Krausman. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar, and Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought from GBB. GBB.